So we are continuing our study verse by verse through the New Testament, one chapter at a time. We're currently in the book of Acts. And if any of you guys forgot to grab a Bible this morning, you want to follow along with us, go ahead and raise your hand. Bill's got a whole stack of them here. He can help you guys out. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand there. Uh, But so, the book of Acts has been a lot of fun to study through, um, that it reads, you know, very quickly. It seems like it's moving from action to action. There's so much going on there. Um, so in many ways, it's, it's kind of a fun change of pace from some of the other New Testament books. We see so much going on, and we see a real sense of excitement over the work that God is doing, over the spread of the gospel, over all that's going on, um, that it's just really cool to see how God worked to spread the gospel. And for those of us here this morning, I think that message is all the more powerful knowing what God has done in the past. Uh, Many of us are coming off of probably not very easy times this past week. Uh, As Doug had mentioned in his prayer earlier, we don't know, you know, what exactly is going on in the lives of all of us. Some of us have had fantastic weeks where everything went great. Life was going according to plan. We saw God's blessing and we experienced that firsthand. And some of us are coming off of harder times that this past week maybe we faced some challenges in our personal lives, in our families, in our work, that there's different things that we all come up against that can cause us to fear, to have doubts, to wonder what God is doing and if God is still present, to ask why God would allow things to happen the way that he did. And we're here this morning because of the gospel. That those of us who had great weeks are here because of the gospel. Those of us who had rough weeks are here because of the gospel. And we know that the gospel is bigger than anything we face. That the power of the gospel is greater than anything we face. And that the gospel can overcome any challenge that we have. And so that's our focus point here this morning. Um, kind of what we're going to see as we move through this passage is that the gospel gives us hope in every situation. Uh, that those of us who have had great weeks can rejoice in that because of the gospel and the power of our Lord. And those of us who have had hard times can still rejoice. We can hold fast to God in hope, knowing that we have that hope because of the gospel, no matter what is going on. And so we've seen, as we study through the book of Acts, that spread of the gospel. We've seen the beginning of the church, that Acts serves as somewhat of an apologetic for Christianity, explaining to the Roman Empire and rulers what Christianity was about, that it was not a political threat, but that this was the work of God moving in the hearts and lives of people for his glory. Uh, We see the spread of the gospel, um, this last few chapters, from being kind of a small sect of Judaism in many ways, to now something that was meant to be preached and proclaimed to the Gentiles. We saw God bring the power of the message of hope of the gospel to the Gentiles, along with the gift of the Holy Spirit, revealing to them and to the Jewish leaders of the church that this was a message meant for the entire world. So we've seen that happen, and we've seen God work in many amazing ways. We've also seen some challenges to the church and to the work that's going on. And we're going to see a few more challenges here 
as we read through this this morning. That the church has experienced some persecution here, but it's going to get noticeably more serious in chapter 12. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. I'll be reading out of the ESV this morning. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So our situation opens. We've seen the gospel spread to the Gentiles, continue to grow and to expand. And we see with that growth that it also became more and more of something that the leadership of the Roman Empire was watching for. And so we see this guy here right in verse 1, Herod the king. Uh, most of you are familiar with this name. I'm sure if you've read the story of the birth of Jesus at Christmas time, any of that, we've read the passages about Jesus' crucifixion. We've seen this name Herod pop up a few times. Um, so this guy is actually a different Herod than we see earlier on in the Gospels. Um, so initially, Herod the Great uh, was a man from Edom, or Edomia, the Roman Empire. Uh, so he was not Jewish. He was someone who collaborated with the Romans, helped them consolidate control over Israel, over the Jewish people. And because of that, the Romans gave him a portion of Israel to rule over, and he was able to call himself king. Uh, so he was not Jewish. He had no right to rule over the Jewish people from their standpoint. Uh, but the Romans had given him control over this area because of what he had done. So this is Herod the Great. He's the one who built the temple to try to appease the Jews because he was not Jewish and they obviously didn't like him very well. Um, so he had consolidated control, done all these great building projects, um, done all these different things to help the Romans. And then we see a few other guys within his family fill his shoes after that. So Herod the Great was the one who was afraid of Jesus, who had all the young boys in Bethlehem executed in order to hold on to his power, to defend his power against this new king that had been prophesied. And we see the other men who took the name Herod acting in a similar manner, uh, that they were also not Jewish, trying to keep control over the area they had to keep the peace and to maintain that positive relationship with the Roman Empire. And so the next Herod is uh, Herod the Great's nephew. He's the one who had put Jesus on trial, who spoke to him there. And uh, we see a third Herod appear in this passage. So this is Herod Agrippa. Um, so this is, again, uh, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the first one. So still from that same family, still very much not Jewish, still very much not the most popular with the Jews. And so he sees what's going on with this group known as Christians recently. Uh, that they're continuing to grow, that they're expanding, they're reaching out to different people, that more and more people are talking about this and being impacted by it. And because he wanted to maintain that positive relationship with the Roman Empire, he didn't want to see any uprisings or any problems here. But he also was oftentimes trying to buy the favor 
of the Jewish leaders. So he saw this as an opportunity. We think about how strongly the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, had opposed the spread of the gospel, the work of Jesus. Uh, that Herod was probably trying to appease these guys to make sure the Romans knew that he still had control and to make himself look good and maintain his power. And so we see Herod step in uh, right there in verse 1, that he lays hands on people within the church. He begins to arrest them, to bring them into custody, that he wants to stop what's going on here. He doesn't like this. He sees this as a threat to his rule, and he's trying to stop it. And so in verse 2, we're told that he kills James, the brother of John, uh, that one of the disciples who was closest to Jesus has already lost his life, that Herod executed him. And then we're told in verse 3 that Herod saw that it pleased the Jewish leaders, that they were happy that Herod was taking these men, executing them, trying to slow the spread of Christianity. And so after that, he goes out and he arrests Peter as well, another one of the disciples who was closest to Jesus. So things are not looking good here. So Peter is arrested during the Days of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover. Uh, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem coming to make sacrifices at the temple, to worship God, to remember what he had done for them, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Um, so there's a ton of people in Jerusalem when this is going on. And so in verse 4, Herod has seized Peter and holds him in prison. Now we have to remember what's happened earlier on in the book of Acts. Peter's been arrested before. It didn't go so well. He's arrested once. They talk to him, beat him, let him go. Second time, they arrest him, hold him in prison. Angel comes, open the gates of the jail, leads him out. Nobody has any idea how he got there. They find him standing in the temple preaching. So he doesn't want Peter to have some sort of miraculous escape again. So this time, he takes Peter, puts him in prison, has him handcuffed or chained to a soldier on each side. There's two guys beside him, that there's different groups of soldiers guarding the gate, that there's no way Peter can get out of this. So Peter is in an impossible situation, that he's been arrested because of his association with Jesus, his preaching of the gospel. One of his closest companions has already been executed for preaching the gospel, and he is sitting there waiting to die, that he is in a Roman prison with their guards, the same people that executed Jesus, that had just killed James, just waiting, knowing that this is more than likely the end. And I love what we see here, that this is, again, such a terrible situation. But in verse 5, we see the response of God's people to this. It says, In earnest, but earnest prayer was made for him, for Peter, to God by the church. That they're in an impossible situation. Their leaders are being arrested, that they're being killed, that they're waiting, not sure what's going on, what God is doing here, if God is doing anything here. And they gather together and they pray. And for so many of us, we can be caught in difficult situations, that obstacles will come that Jesus did not promise us an easy life if we followed him. But we know that he is always with us, that he's promised to never leave us, and that we have direct access 
to God through prayer. That when hard times come, the best thing we can do is gather together and pray. That we get on our knees and we seek God and his favor. That we cry out to him knowing that he is there, that he hears, and that he is able to act upon that. That he can do great things when we pray. So Peter is in prison, the church is praying, and God does something amazing. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter, chained to two guards, two more guards watching the door to the cell, waiting inside a Roman fortress, knowing that he's probably going to be executed at the end of the Passover festival. People are praying for him, and he has fallen asleep. We don't know, you know what exactly was going through his mind, but whatever it was, apparently he had a great deal of faith in God that allowed him to just fall asleep laying on the floor of a cell, handcuffed to two Roman soldiers. That he was trusting God in this situation. That he knew, even if he was to die, that God was faithful in that moment, that that would be part of God's plan and that God would use it to bring about good. That Peter was at peace. But we see that God had other plans in this moment. That God was not going to allow Peter to die just yet. And so God sends an angel, comes into the cell, and Peter's sleeping so soundly that the angel has to smack him on the side to wake him up. Hey, get up, put on your shoes, come on, let's go. And we see the chains fall off of his hands. And that's such a great picture of the power of God. That the chains that were binding him just fell off. That the angel told him, get on your feet, put on your shoes, let's go. That God is able to free his people from any and every situation. And I don't think any of us have been physically chained down because of the gospel. But there's various things that can tie down all of us. That we can be burdened by our fears burdened by the guilt of sin, burdened by the different trials that arise. But just like God made the chains fall off of Peter at a word, that God can release us from the different things that keep us down, that if we go to God in prayer, he is faithful to deliver us from that bondage to sin, 
to bring us into his kingdom of light, to grant us freedom and life and hope as only he can do. So the chains fall off of Peter's hands. The angel tells him to get himself dressed, to put on his shoes, and to go out and follow him through the jail. The door miraculously just opens on its own. The angel leads Peter out into the street. And while this is going on, Peter doesn't even realize that this is real, that he's probably thinking back to the vision God had given him earlier in Acts, that he's thinking, okay, God is giving me some sort of message again. And so he follows the angel, goes out into the street. The angel leaves, and he realizes, wow, this is real. That was not a dream. That was not a vision. That God has delivered me from the hand of the king and from the Jewish leaders that wanted to see him dead. That God brought him out of all this. Church family, God gives us hope in impossible situations. Um, That many of you, I'm sure, have been around someone at the end of their life. Uh, that you've seen that steady progression, knowing that, okay, this is the time. Uh, that you see whatever the news is, you know, that, that someone's been brought to the hospital, um, that something's wrong with their heart, that their breathing is not good, uh, that things are going downhill. And we know what it's like to prepare ourselves for that loss. And that's probably, I imagine, what Peter was thinking. He's imagining What's the end going to be like? How are they going to execute me? What's it going to be like when I see my Lord for the first time? And the church was praying for him, and they may have been praying over these same things, but God had a different plan. And some of us have been facing difficult things. I know this past week, um, just through various news as we're going about our work here at the church office, um, I can think of a couple different events that happened. Um, Numerous people in the church were touched by difficult situations, things that had happened this past week. Uh, We just had a death in my family this past week, that um, uh, another close family to our staff within the church had also experienced a death. And in these times, sometimes we question what God is doing. That it's hard to know, to understand why God has chosen to take this person home at this time. Why he chose to take the person he did when he did. Why God is doing things the way that he is. And difficult situations in general often bring those same questions uh, that some of us have seen the difficulty, the grief caused by cancer, by the loss of a job. When friends turn on you, when relatives are difficult and make things hard, when the struggles that come with life in a fallen world enter into our everyday lives, what do we do? And we have to remember when these difficult things happen that the gospel is what gives us hope. And I'm preparing for this sermon again with everything that had happened this past week. That was the thing that stood out to me is that this message of the gospel must go on. It must continue. And it can continue because the gospel is what gives us hope. That we have hope in the midst of these struggles, of deaths, of temptations 
and trials because we know that God has saved us, that God has redeemed us, that God gives us hope, not just in this life, but hope into eternity, that we know God is faithful and God is working and God is doing great things. And so we can trust in his plan when those painful events come, knowing that he will either grant delivery as he did to Peter or he grants hope for the coming life. So think about the difficulties in your own lives. What sort of impossibilities are you facing right now this week? Especially for those of us that have had struggles. What is it that seems insurmountable? What struggle does it seem like there's no way we can get through? What person are we dealing with that seems too far from the reach of God? How does the gospel intersect with your problem? Think about how it is that God might be working through this to draw people unto himself, to grow your faith in him, to give you that hope that transcends all circumstances and situations. The gospel gives us hope no matter what. Verse 12. So Peter's been led out of the prison. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter's been let out of the prison. He realizes that it was not a vision, that it was real. And so he goes out and he wants to share this with the rest of the church. And so he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Uh, it says in verse 12 that many were gathered together and were praying. I think this is such an important thing for us to remember, that the church collectively was facing a challenge, that they'd been losing literally their leaders, had been taken away from them, some of them killed. They didn't know what God was doing here, how God was going to work through this, and so they gathered together and they prayed, we saw earlier on. And we see that they're continuing to pray, that many of them gathered together to seek God and his favor, his wisdom in the midst of this. So they're gathered together and they're praying. And the very guy that they're praying for, the guy that they're expecting to hear of his death, this guy shows up and knocks on the door. Hey, it's me. It's Peter. Can I come in? And so a servant girl, we're told, Rhoda, comes to answer the door. And she recognizes that it's Peter's voice before she even opens it. And she can't believe it. She's so excited. She runs back to tell everybody else and kind of forgets an important step when somebody is at your door. 
And so she goes back and tells the rest of the disciples, Peter's here. He's here. God brought him. And everybody else says, there's no way. You're crazy. We know that Peter is in prison, chained to Roman guards, that he is waiting to be executed. There is no way that Peter is here. This cannot be possible. Uh, They even go so far um, as to say to her in verse 15, they say, it is his angel. Uh, So there's various views on what this statement means. Uh, Some people would say that uh, they they believed that uh, he had a guardian angel, that individual believers had a guardian angel assigned to them uh, that may have borne some resemblance to him. Uh, Some people say that, you know, they meant like it was his spirit, that he'd already, you know, been crucified, had his head lopped off, and this is Peter's spirit coming to the door, knocking, trying to talk to him. So we're not sure what exactly they meant by this, but the end point they're getting at is, no, Peter's not out there. You're crazy. This can't be happening. And so she keeps insisting to them. Peter continues knocking on the door. Hey, I'm still out here. I just got out of prison. Can I come in and get a sandwich? Um, So he's continuing on with that. And finally, they go open the door and they see him there. And in verse 17, it says that Peter motioned with his hand to be silent. We imagine in their joy, they were probably all asking a thousand different questions at the same time. How did you get here? How did you get out of the prison? Who, did they release you? What's going on? How did this? And so Peter just has to stop. God led me out here. He released me from the prison cell. An angel came and brought me out into the street so that I could be back here with you all, that God released me. And so he shares the news with the people gathered there. In verse 17, he tell, says to them to tell these things to James and to the brothers, to the other apostles. And then he departed and went to another place. And so Peter wanted to share the news of the great things God had done with the church, that he wanted to make sure that the church shared that with James, who would become the leader of the Jerusalem church, and with the rest of the apostles and the believers. That he wanted them to know about the great things that God had done, and then he left. And we don't really know a lot about what happened in the life of Peter after this. Uh, He continued to minister somewhere. There's um, different ideas within church tradition on where he went and what he did. But we know that Peter continued to preach the gospel, continued to speak to others of the Lord that had saved him, and that he was faithful to what God was doing. And that's the important part, uh, that Peter isn't remembered for what happened after here, but he is remembered for his service to his Lord, and more importantly, for what God did. That Peter's desire was that people would know about God, that they would know how great God is, know how powerful God is, know what God had done for him. And so that's Peter's legacy, as he kind of disappears from our biblical narrative at this point, as things change. Prayer is the pathway to the impossible. That the church was waiting for Peter to die. Peter was waiting to die. And the church gathered together and they cried out to God, maybe not even expecting God to answer this way. 
uh, that they knew God could do amazing things. But they probably had some doubts at some level, wondering if God would do this, why God would do this. And so they cried out to God, and God miraculously brought Peter out of a situation that no man could have escaped from, that there was no hope for Peter apart from the sovereign working of God. But when the church prayed, they had hope. And God answered that. God honored that hope. And God delivered Peter from certain death so that they could see his greatness and his power, that they might worship and glorify God for the work he had done, and that Peter might continue the work that God had given him to do. We don't know how God is going to answer our prayers. We don't know what God's will is for the future. But we also don't know what God might do if we call out to him. That oftentimes it's easy to fall into kind of a mundane routine sometimes in our prayers. That we forget that we are connecting directly with the God, the creator of the universe. The God who has power over all that is. The God who created laws of nature and science. Who can defy physics in order to help his people and to advance the work of the gospel. And so when we're up against something that seems impossible or even something that's merely difficult, nothing is too big and nothing is too small for our Lord. That we want to bring everything before God, lay it at his feet, cry out to him, seek his favor, and wait and see what God might do. His answer might be like it was for James. I'm sure the church was praying for James. And God's answer to them was, no, it's time for James to come home to me. And we don't know why God took James, but gave Peter another chance. And God doesn't always explain why. But sometimes when we pray, the answer will be like it is for Peter. That God will do something that nobody saw coming. That nobody would have expected. That God will do great things in order to bring glory unto himself, to advance the gospel, and to build the faith of his people. That he will do what's best in every situation. And so we want to pray for that when we come before God. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. We can imagine the ruckus when the guards woke up the next day. Uh, They had no idea what happened. Uh, That They probably had fallen asleep knowing Peter was right there where there was no way he could escape. And the next morning, four guys are sitting there in a room where there should have been five, going, how did this happen? And then probably the next thought is, oh, this is bad. Uh, So it's common 
in the Roman Empire, uh, when a prisoner escaped or something happened, that the guards would suffer whatever punishment was meant for that prisoner. So we see the end result that was intended here, um, that Herod comes in, they search for him, they don't find Peter. We're told that Herod examined the sentries, probably questioned them, wondering how on earth this could have happened again after they took all these extra measures to keep him there. And so he orders that the sentries should be put to death, and then he leaves Judea and goes to Caesarea. Um, So we're not sure why exactly Herod left here. Maybe he was a little embarrassed at what was going on. Um, But so Herod leaves Jerusalem, and he goes down to Caesarea, which is a city on the coast next to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, This was a port city that had been built there that was kind of a secondary capital almost for the Roman Empire. And so Herod decides, all right, this is not going my way. I'm going to leave here, and we'll go deal with some other things there. But really, what we see in this passage is sometimes God's work is unexplainable to man. That there was no way they could understand or make an excuse for this. That the guards could not explain in any believable physical terms how Peter had escaped. That there was no explanation for the work of God. That God was doing things that people could not believe that seemed impossible because that's what God does. So we pick up again with Herod, uh, kind of an interesting little side note here. So Peter and James are arrested. James is executed. Peter is miraculously delivered and saved from this through the work of God, through the prayer of the church. And then we see here a little bit more kind of on a side note of what happens between Herod and God. So we've seen what's going on with the church, with Peter and James. So let's read a little bit more about Herod here. Verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So, Herod was opposing what God was doing. Herod had placed himself in direct opposition to the church, to the spread of the gospel, to the apostles. And so after doing that, he kind of runs away, like, all right, I'm not dealing with this anymore. I'm going to go down here to Caesarea, to my kind of secondary capital here, a little more Roman area of influence. And we're told that he's got kind of a political little hustle going on, Um, that he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon over something. We don't know what it was exactly, Um, but so the people of Tyre and Sidon realize that this maybe isn't a good guy to tick off because we get all of our food from his territory. And so they send some emissaries there to meet with him, um, that they persuade the chamberlain to ask for peace because of this dependence upon him. Um, So they go there, they meet with him, and we're told in verse 21, on an appointed day that Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat 
upon the throne and delivered an oration to these people that were trying to gain his favor again after they had somehow angered him. Uh, it's interesting, we actually see this event recorded um, outside of Scripture too. The historian Josephus um, wrote about this event, that he says that um, Herod you know, was down by the coast, that he was you know, dressed extravagantly, and um, that he was making this speech. And these people from Tyre and Sidon were probably trying to butter him up a little bit too. They're thinking like, all right, we got to make sure this guy actually likes us now. And so Herod's doing his best to look like the fantastic king that he saw himself as. And these people have something to gain by going along with him doing so. And so he makes a speech, the people were crying out, the voice of a god and not of a man. That Herod is so majestic, so powerful, he must not be human. He must be some sort of deity. That this guy is great. Again, probably trying to make Herod feel a little more positive about them too. So Herod probably appreciated that. Um, but we're told in verse 23, right after that, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory. That the people were crying out, this king is amazing. This king must be divine. And Herod accepted that praise and God said, no, that's not happening here, not under my watch, not in Israel. And so an angel comes and strikes him down. Uh, Josephus records that he was immediately struck with severe pain and some sort of digestive problem, something with his gut, and that he collapsed, was taken away, and died five days later. God will take care of his enemies. Uh, we think about earlier on in the book of Acts, uh, when the Sanhedrin is meeting, Gamaliel is speaking to the Sanhedrin about their opposition to the church, to the spread of the gospel. And he says in Acts 5.39, that if this is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So he warned the Sanhedrin, hey, if this is not from God, it's going to disappear. But if this is the work of God, you don't want to be in opposition to God. And unfortunately for Herod, that's exactly where he found himself here, that he was opposing God and that God took care of it. And I think that's a great encouragement for us here today, uh, that so often as we go through life, we face different difficulties, um, we're going to face opposition if we are faithful to walk with the Lord. And we have to remember that when that happens, that God is in control and that God will deal with his enemies. That he's charged us to proclaim the gospel, to share the message of hope and love with the world, uh, to be faithful to him. But we don't have to worry about those that oppose us. That God is more than capable of dealing with his enemies. And there's so many examples of this in the Old Testament. I think the one that um, stands out the most is um, when we see 
in the later stages of the, the kingdom of Israel, before they're taken away to exile, that the Assyrian army is coming through that area, and they get into Israel, and they're just rolling through, taking cities, wiping out armies, that they seem to be unstoppable. And God tells the people of Israel, don't worry, that they're going to come right up to Jerusalem, and then I will stop them. And so the Assyrian army comes in and they surround the city of Jerusalem. They're preparing to lay siege to it. They just got there. They've taken numerous other fortified cities and strategic areas. And the people of Israel have no hope against this army on their own. And so the Assyrian army comes in. They set up camp. They probably are beginning to move in and build their siege works. And night falls. And they go to sleep. And a huge portion of their army never wakes up. That God sends an angel, decimates their army, the remaining group retreats back to Assyria and has to brag about some other city they captured because they were not able to take Jerusalem because God was defending it. And so we can take heart that that is the same God we are serving, that God will rise to our defense, that God will take care of his enemies, and that God will be with us. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And I think verse 24 might be the most important verse in this whole chapter, that we see these great highs and lows, that we see the church being persecuted, we see leaders being executed. We see God miraculously rescuing his people, answering the prayers of the church and doing great things. And the end result we see here in verse 24 is that the word of God increased and multiplied. We also see following that, uh, that Barnabas and Saul were told, return from Jerusalem where they'd completed their service Bring with them John Mark. And so Barnabas and Saul, if we remember from last week, had gone from Antioch to Jerusalem. Uh, they had been sent there to help deliver some aid to the church in Jerusalem. And they went back and life continued. And life goes on for all of us. That through the highs and lows, the ups and, ups and downs, that life continues its march forward. That time goes on, that people live and die, that trials come and they go. And we have hope in all of that because of the gospel. And that is why it's so important that the gospel continued to increase and multiply, that the gospel has to spread, the gospel has to permeate every area of our lives because the gospel is what gives us that hope, that the gospel is where we should be looking for answers, for purpose, and for hope in everything. And so as I wrap things up here, I'm going to ask Doug to come back up. But I think that's really what we want to remember as we go through life, is that the gospel is what got the church through persecution. The gospel is what we need when things get hard. That when difficulties arise, 
that we have to lean into the gospel, knowing that that is where our answers come from. That is where our hope is. That no matter what happens, the march of life continues. And we can get up each morning, and we can go make our coffee, and we can greet each day in hope, knowing that God is sovereign, that God is faithful, and that God answers the prayers of his people. Let's go to him in prayer. I thank you, Father, that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are faithful, God. I thank you that you are a God who hears your people, who answers prayers, and who is able to do what we could not even imagine, Lord. I pray that you would help us to live in that hope, to look to you in those moments of difficulty, knowing that you may not answer the way we think you should, Lord, but that your answer will be what's best, Lord. And help us to hope in that. I pray that you would be with us uh, as we go from here, Lord, that you would help us to live in that hope each and every day and worship you with the way that we live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.